Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. It's a privilege to bring God's word to you this morning, as it is a privilege to bring God's word to the youth on Wednesday nights as well. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And the Bible says, And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected. This became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they were disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God, You have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Bow with me in prayer. Our gracious, kind, heavenly Father, how grateful we are that we get to gather together to worship and praise you this morning. I ask that you give us attentive ears and open hearts to your word, that you would speak to us through your word this morning, and that everything we do might be to your honor, your glory, and your praise. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. And it's often easy for Christians to feel overwhelmed as we face life's trials and temptations. We often begin to face or place our, our focus on our own pleasures and our own pursuits. And we forget why we were, were created. We become oblivious to the many wonderful distinctions that we have as believers that we've been given by God. And we become dissatisfied where God has placed us. This is why so many Christians drift aimlessly through life. And why so many experience feelings of dissatisfaction, anxiety, and depression. Many Christians live life without a purpose, without a sense of direction. It's it's as if they are a runner on a race who gets lost and, and forgets his purpose for running. Our passage in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, 4 through 10 lists six distinctions given to believers that should help you understand God's ultimate purpose for your life, which is the proclamation of his glory. Now, before we begin examining our first distinction, I'd like you to understand the context of this passage. You know, in 1 Peter, we've seen how the apostle is writing to encourage his fellow believers who are undergoing intense persecution. His encouragements are mixed with exhortations, reminders to trust in God, to hope in the work of Christ, and to live a life glorifying to God. Even as these believers faced intense persecution, they could hope because of the great benefits they possess as God's children. And these distinctions are are not meant merely for your personal ease or your personal enjoyment. Your distinctions as believers, your very salvation is not ultimately for your benefit. God's divine providence 
in electing you, calling you, drawing you, justifying you, sanctifying you, saving you, sustaining you, and one day glorifying you are not primarily about you. No, the purpose of your birth, your life, and your death is to bring glory to God. And that is why, as 1 Peter 1.19 tells us, that you have been redeemed with the precious blood of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. In chapter 2, last week, we looked at the first three verses describing the believers growing in respect to their salvation through the application of God's word. And as Matt preached last week, believers are to put off all forms of sin and to put on the word of God, which God has provided with his loving kindness. This putting off of sin and putting on of the word are blessings that come to the believer from the kindness of God. In love, God has granted to the believer distinctions that are part of our salvation. And the first distinction that we're going to look at in our passage is that the believer is drawn to Christ. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. We read, And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Now the phrase coming to him is in the, in the middle passive voice and in the original Greek, meaning that the action is done to the believer, not by the believer. Thus the believer comes to Christ, not due to his own action, but due to the actions of God. You do not choose to come to Christ on your own accord. Yes, you had to respond to the call of God, absolutely. But salvation is entirely the gift of God. You cannot boast in your salvation. The very repentance and faith that you exercise are themselves gifts of God. If they are ultimately your prerogative, then in the final analysis, you could glory in your intellect for choosing God. However, scripture denies such vainglory. In John 6, Jesus says, No man can come unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. It is God who draws men to Christ. And it is the Father that, that draws you and all that the Father draw will be raised to eternal life. And this is true because not only does the believer come to Christ, but he remains in Christ. Now the idea expressed in verse 4 is that not only is the believer coming to Christ, but he's remaining in Christ. Peter's trying to convey the truth that believers who come to Christ will remain in him. And this fact should provide you with the assurance of your salvation. Because you come to God through his power, not through your own power, you cannot leave according to your own volition. The same God who draws the believer keeps the believer. And just as the believer is chosen by God, the object of his belief is likewise chosen. Peter interrupts the flow of verse 4 by inserting a parenthetical thought about the living stone that is Christ. We read that Christ is a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is precious in the sight of God. The person of Christ was chosen through the the will of our triune God to come to earth to be the living stone for his people. As Chris already exposited to us back when we were going through chapter 1, in verses 19 through 20, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So before the world was ever created, God foreknew and foreordained that Christ would come to be our living stone. God's foreknowledge is not merely looking down the the tunnel of time to learn what would happen. That is an assault upon the deity of God. The Lord is omniscient. He has never learned anything. 
Foreknowledge is the idea of loving from beforehand. To know someone in the biblical sense of the word can mean to know in a deep and intimate manner. In the way a husband knows a wife. It's a deep, ultimate form of knowledge based upon love. Christ was foreknown and chosen to come to earth as our savior. And the word chosen comes from the Greek electon where we get our English word for election. Christ was elected before the dawn of time to come as our living stone. If you are a believer, this knowledge should fill you with a sense of wonder and of awe. I mean, you have been drawn to the choice and precious living stone. You, despite your sin, your disobedience, and your rebellion, have been chosen by the Lord to come to Christ and to remain in Christ. I mean, what a distinction, what a privilege. What an honor we have. Now, some of you might be struggling with the assurance of your salvation. And sadly, this is quite a common experience for Christians in the Western world. And while there is reason for you to examine yourself and examine the fruit of your life, please know that your salvation does not rest in you. It does not rest in a decision that you made or a prayer that you prayed in youth camp. It does not rest on the sincerity of a prayer or some magic words that you said. No, it rests in the power of Christ. Christ, who drew you to himself, who keeps you remaining in him, and who will raise you up on the last day. He is the source of your assurance. Such knowledge should be a great source of encouragement to you, just as it was for Peter's audience. Even as you face persecution and temptation, you can rest assured in your salvation that is grounded in the work of Christ. And this is one of the many distinctions that separates the believer from the unbeliever. The unbeliever trusts in his own strength, in his own works, in his own merits. The believer trusts in the work of Christ. So the first distinction of a believer is that you are drawn to Christ. You're drawn for a purpose. And that purpose is the second distinction for the believer. And we see this purpose in verse 5. Please read with me. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The second distinction of the believer is that you are being designed together into a spiritual house. Peter is building on the analogy that he uses at the beginning of verse 4. If you remove the parenthetical thought that he inserts in the second half of verse 4, the sentence would read this way. And coming to him as to a living stone, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. So like Christ, we are living stones. And such a phrase is a paradox. I mean, how can a stone be alive? Well, I'd like you to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. We see this idea throughout scripture. And it's the basis for the new covenant. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. And the Lord is speaking here. And he says, I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So you who were once stones, spiritually dead, cold, unresponsive, have been made alive. And why? Well, if we go back to 1 Peter, we see that it's to be built up as a spiritual house. The you in verse 5 is plural, not singular. Meaning you all, or as they say down south, y'all, right? Y'all are being built up together. The Christian life 
is not meant to be lived alone. There's no Lone Ranger Christians. I mean, even the Lone Ranger had Tonto as a sidekick, right? You're part of the body of Christ. Christ is the head. We each have specific functions within that body. We are individual stones that have been placed together for a purpose. Now, we have several people in our church who, who work in construction and landscaping, and they can tell you that one stone or one brick is useless by itself. It needs to be placed with others for it to have value. The famous preacher, Charles Spur Spurgeon, once made this point in one of his sermons, and quoting Spurgeon, he says, quote, there is a brick. What is a brick made for? It's made to build a house. It is of no use for the brick to tell you that it's just as good a brick while it's kicking about on the ground by itself. Pause, I love Spurgeon's English accent there, kicking about on the ground by itself, continuing as it would be as part of a house. Actually, it's a good-for-nothing brick. So you, Rolling Stone Christians, I don't believe that you're answering the purpose for which Christ saved you. You're living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live, and you are much to blame for the injury that you do, unquote. Wow. Those are some harsh words from Spurgeon, but they're true. A brick by itself is useless. Left lying on the ground, it only causes others to trip and to stumble. But placed with other bricks, it becomes an inviting home, a mighty fortress, a towering temple. That's why you should become a member of a local Bible-believing church. There are many reasons why church membership is a biblical principle. Matt was just talking about our membership classes coming up. And no, we didn't plan this beforehand. It just happened with the, with the passage. But either Matt or one of the elders or I would love to talk to you about what it means to become a member of a local church. And part of that is becoming a member is serving and, and being committed to serve alongside your fellow Christians. If you don't become a member, it's kind of like a, a brick that is placed in the wall but doesn't commit to staying in the wall. If you remove the brick, what happens? The wall, yeah, the wall loses integrity and the wall could come crashing down. And this was especially true when, when Peter was writing this epistle in the first century because mortar had not yet been commonly used during that time period. So the soundness of a building was determined by how, how tightly the stones were packed together. I mean, what a beautiful picture of the unity that should be present in the local church. For us to stand against the storms of the world, the church must be tightly fitted together. Now notice that the stones do not build themselves. No, they're being built up as a spiritual house. See, it's God who constructs the temple that is the building of believers. The believers' distinctions are all the result of God. He is the one active in the process. We are the ones receiving the action in this verse. God is designing his church into a structure He's designing his church to be tightly packed together. Whereas one stone could be easily removed, the whole wall together is unshaken and impervious. And what is the purpose of this spiritual house? Why is God designing believers together into such a structure? The purpose of the house is for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. The purpose of a, of a believer is to be drawn to and designed to get together so that God would be glorified. God's church is designed for a purpose, and that purpose is to glorify God. How does the, the church glorify God? What well, acts as a holy priesthood, offering up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through the finished work of Christ. Such sacrifices are to come through every area of your life. And you might say, well, how am I to offer up acceptable sacrifices? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. 
You know, we don't have time to make an exhaustive list from Scripture this morning, but let me read to you from Romans 12.1. I'm going to be reading from the King James Version because I just love that translation. It's very moving. And, and, and Paul writes in Romans 12.1, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Paul tells us that our very bodies are to be a living sacrifice. This means that your entire life needs to be acceptable to God. Now notice the similarity in the language between Peter and between Paul. Our spiritual sacrifices are done for God's glory. So whether you're singing up here on the worship team or vacuuming the church carpets, giving a monetary offering, making food for the youth group, preaching from the pulpit, or praying by your bedside, your whole life is meant to be a sacrifice to the Lord. Now, please note that this service, this sacrifice is not done for your glory. If you're serving so that people look at you or so that you receive praise, your sacrifice will be rejected by God. It's not an acceptable sacrifice. You are to serve God, die, and be forgotten here on earth. That is what we're called to do as Christians. To be placed in the wall, not so that we would get attention, but to build up the wall. Now, there is one application that I'd like us to consider here at our local assembly at Church of the Canyons. And I'd like to both encourage you and to exhort you from the application of Peter's message to us in, in verse 5. You know, over the last three years, this church has had to endure many storms without having a senior pastor. And during that time, many of you have made great sacrifices for the ministry here at Church of the Canyons. God has placed you in the spiritual house that we call Church of the Canyons, and you have served faithfully where God has placed you. And now that Pastor Chris and his wife Dawn are, are on their way and are going to be with us shortly and begin serving alongside us, there might be a temptation to, you know, take a step back. Obviously, you know, Pastor Chris is going to shoulder a lot of responsibility here. But however, let me exhort you not to view his arrival as an opportunity to, you know, take a breather. Just because God has added his stone to the wall of our spiritual house does not mean that you should remove your stone from the wall. God is the one who builds his church. You and I are just stones, building material for his use. If you remove your stone from the wall as soon as Chris gets here, the wall still has a hole even though Chris might take up a large space in that wall. And remember, our service is not predicated upon Chris's arrival or the actions of another person. One distinction that believers enjoy is being designed together for the glory of God. Your purpose is to glorify God through acceptable sacrifices, which are your reasonable service to the Lord. That service, that sacrifice should not change just because we, have, we get a new pastor. If anything, I encourage you to lean harder into the service that God has called you to perform here. And I exhort you in such a manner, not because I believe we have unwilling laborers at Church of the Canyons, far from it. I mean, this church has consistently demonstrated in the short time that Sydney and I have been here that it is a very caring and loving and serving church. However, I know the temptation personally to ease up and relax after a great struggle. And thus, I commend the faithful service that you have consistently displayed and exhort you to continue on even more so when Pastor Chris arrives. And because you're drawn to God and you've been designed together into this spiritual house with Christ as its cornerstone, you will not be disappointed. And this is our third distinction as of the believers, that believers are not disappointed. Look with me in your Bibles to verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 6 says, For this is contained in Scripture. 
Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And you might recognize that Peter is quoting here from Isaiah 28, 16. And in context, Isaiah 28 is talking about a message of judgment coming upon Israel for its disobedience and unbelief. What Isaiah emphasized through his prophecy comes to the forefront in these verses. It's that those who trust in the Lord will escape judgment. And Isaiah encouraged the people of his day not to trust, to trust in foreign alliances or in military strength, but only in the Lord. Those who do not trust in him will perish, but those who put their faith in him will prosper. And the stone in Isaiah's day was probably referring to the Davidic covenant uh, and thus God's commitment to his people. But here, Peter is using it by extension to speak of Christ, the final Davidic king. Like the ancient Israelites, Christians in Peter's day were encouraged to place their full trust in the Messiah. Jesus is the choice, precious cornerstone. If you believe in him, trusting in him for your salvation, you will not be disappointed. And the word translated in our English text as disappointed conveys the idea of being uh, dishonored. Now, it might seem paradoxical to view the early Christians as not being dishonored. I mean, if you remember the context of Peter's letter, he's writing to believers who are undergoing intense persecution. I mean, these are people who are being thrown to the lions, used as, as torches. They're living torches being lit on fire for the, the pleasure and the disgusting um, actions of the Romans, the Roman government. I mean, the Christians were viewed with disdain by the Roman authorities and by the Jewish religious leaders. They were despised and persecuted. From a worldly perspective, the Believers were the, the height of dishonor. And in our society, Christianity is no longer viewed with esteem. I mean, at best, Christianity in our society is viewed with indifference. At worst, Christianity makes you a target for, for attack, as the recent shooting last month in, in Nashville made all too clear. If you trust in the Lord, you will be viewed with disdain by the world. You will be hated by the world because the world hates Christ. Yet, the scriptures in both the Old and New Testaments declared that you will not be dishonored if you trust the Lord. You will not be disappointed. Why? Because you are built upon the choice stone, the precious cornerstone that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And upon this foundation, you will not be shaken. That should encourage you even during the worst storms of life. Although the world may dishonor you, you will face no dishonor before your heavenly father. Just as Christ is, is chosen and honored before the Father and was so honored at his resurrection, so too will believers be vindicated upon the last day. What, if tr what is true of Christ in this instance is true of his people. They will not experience the embarrassment of judgment, but the glory of approval. You will not be disappointed by being built upon the solid rock. And not only will you be not disappointed or dishonored, but you will actually have honor. Moving forward in our passage, beginning in verse 7, we read, This precious value, then, is for you who believe. And may, many people who read this passage think that this precious value is referring to Christ. However, it's not speaking of the believer possessing Christ, but of possessing honor. And the ESV actually has a clearer translation of this phrase. It says, So the honor is for you who believe. So the fourth distinction for believers is that they are deeply honored. Not only does the Believer not face dishonor, but he actually possesses honor. Although you may face dishonor from the world and never receive the honor of the masses, if you are a believer, you have honor. And by honor, Peter uh, means final vindication in the day of judgment. 
Peter is referring to eschatological honor that belongs to Christ on the last day and correspondingly to those who believe in him. Just as Christ was honored by the Father in verses 4 and 6, so those who trust in him will be honored in the last day, even though they are presently suffering. Peter is building upon what he wrote in in chapter 1, verse 7, declaring that the proof of the believer's faith, quote, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, such a realization should encourage you to stand firm in the faith. It should act as a motivation for you not to seek worldly honor or worldly approval. As we discussed previously, your spiritual sacrifices are for the glory of God, not the glory of man. The distinctions that God has granted to believers are not ultimately for your benefit. The distinctions are so that God might be honored and glorified in your life. Now, keeping the glory of God as our primary focus is critical as we examine the next distinction of the believer. And this distinction is not, any, is not easy for many Christians to believe. Indeed, our, our natural inclination is to reject it out of hand. Even John Calvin called what we're about to talk about a fearful decree. Yet, this distinction is biblical, and when properly understood, it demonstrates God's glory. I am, of course, speaking of the doctrine of reprobation. Reprobation is where God has decreed to pass over unbelievers, leaving them in their sin, and decreed eternal judgment upon them before the very foundation of the world. So let's read together 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8. Peter says, This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which, was, which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. The fifth distinction afforded to believers is that we are not doomed. For those who reject Christ, the stone which the builders rejected became a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Peter is quoting here from Psalm 118.22 and, and Isaiah 8.14-15. through 15. Speaking of the Messiah, uh, Isaiah declares, Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the house of Israel a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them. They will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. So while Christ, the Messiah, is a sanctuary for those who believe, he's a stumbling block and a snare for those who remain in their disbelief. Not only will they stumble over the stone that is Christ, but they will be broken by him. In 1 Peter 2.8, the rock of offense conveys the idea of a, a great boulder that trips up the believer and then falls upon and crushes the unbeliever's body. The doctrine of Christ has always tripped up unbelievers. In modern America, there's an unbiblical view of Jesus that is rampant in our society, fueled in part by the Jesus culture movement of the 1960s and 70s. And it portrays Jesus as a hippie Jesus, buddy Jesus. And this view is still popular today. Such teaching views Jesus as non-threatening, affirming of sin and, and tolerant of heretical teaching. But what a far cry from the Jesus of Scripture. Jesus is the rock of offense crushing those who stumble over him in their disbelief. And if you reject Christ and never believe, you too will stumble and be crushed by his power. Now you must understand that this judgment is an expression of God's glory. God is glorified in the judgment of the wicked, although he takes no pleasure in that judgment. Not only is God glorified in the doom of the wicked, 
but he has also appointed them to judgment. The end of verse 8 says, For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. The ESV translates the verse as, They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. God has appointed or destined, condemned unbelievers to their judgment. Not only has he destined them for judgment, but he has also destined them to, to stumble and decreed their disobedience. And this is the doctrine of reprobation. The doctrine of reprobation is a necessary complement to the doctrine of election. In, in, in election, God actively predestines those individuals to belief and salvation. This is not due to the, the, the actions or any foreseen actions on the part of the believer, but only due to the good pleasure of God. Remember, God does not look down the tunnel of time. God does not learn anything. To learn something would be to deny his omniscience. In reprobation, then, God is both passive and active, which breaks down this doctrine into two categories, the the passing over and pre-condemnation. In passing over, God's salvific mercy is not given to those whom he has not elected for salvation, meaning that they will follow their natural sinful desires and reject Christ, and they will be responsible for that rejection. And this is passive on God's part. God is perfectly just in choosing some to mercy. Indeed, this is the very definition of mercy. God does not owe sinful man mercy. Rather, he graciously demonstrates it to his elect. To the non-elect, God does not actively intercede on their behalf, but instead passes them over. And the second category of reprobation is pre-condemnation, which is what Peter is describing in this verse. It's an active determination to condemn those whom God has passed over. That is why unbelievers here are appointed to doom. As Steve Lawson declares so pointedly, everyone in heaven is there by God's mercy. Everyone in hell is there by God's justice. The doctrine of reprobation is heavy. But it is one that is found throughout scripture. I'd like you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 6 through 9. Isaiah chapter 45, 6 through 9. And we're going to see a a biblical defense of this doctrine. And again, it's found throughout scripture. But Isaiah chapter 45, verses 6 through 9. This is the Lord speaking here. He says that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I, the Lord, who do do all these things, drip down, O heavens, from above and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. And please note here in verse 7 that it is God who created calamity. And the word translated as calamity speaks of, of evil events. God created those, yet he is not evil. His decree of salvation for his people is just and merciful. And his decree of judgment for those who he passed over is also just. And if you think this is a harsh decree, take care. Lest you make the same error as the pot in verse 9. Will you respond as the clay to the potter and ask him, what is he doing? Such language is actually the basis for Paul's remarks in Romans 9. And we're going to turn there. Romans chapter 9 
verse 16. It's probably the, the key passage on this subject. Turn with me to Romans chapter 9, verse 16, and we're going to see Paul make a very similar argument and draw upon the argument that Isaiah used in Isaiah 45. So Romans chapter 9, verses 16 through 23. So then, it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raise you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will, say to the, will, will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So we see here Paul is drawing from the themes of Isaiah 45, it makes it clear that salvation is dependent upon God, not on human will or human action. It is God and God alone who saves and who reprobates. You will notice the objection raised, uh, raised in verse 19. Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Now notice how similar Paul's response is to what we just read in Isaiah. God endures with much patience the vessels of wrath that have been prepared from beforehand to destruction. The vessels appointed to doom. And while these are difficult verses and many of us struggle with these concepts, know this, both salvation and reprobation are ultimately for the glory of God. The believer is not appointed to stumble, to disbelief, or to doom. That is a distinction that the believer possesses. Yes, you have a responsibility to, to repent of your sin and to believe. And, and God makes that very, very clear throughout Scripture, that human have, humans have a responsibility to repent and believe. Yet that repentance is itself a gift from God, 2 Timothy 2.25. Reprobation is a pride-crushing doctrine. It humbles us. It makes us grateful to God for his mercy. It demonstrates our utter inability. Reprobation shows us that God is glorified in both salvation and in judgment. It does not provide us an excuse to blame God or to deny human responsibility. Both Peter and Paul make that clear. Yet reprobation humbles our pride. It makes us acknowledge the mercy and grace of God. You have been shown mercy by God. As a believer, you have been prepared beforehand to glory, no matter how much pain and persecution you experience here on earth. Reprobation is a hard but God-glorifying doctrine and should encourage you as a believer. Okay, now that we got the light and easy stuff out of the way, we can actually finish the introduction and get into the sermon. So we, we come now to uh, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, which is at the heart of of our passage. Um, previously, we have seen how the believer is drawn to God, how he's designed together, not disappointed, deeply honored, and not doomed. Lastly, we will see that believers are designated 
by God. And there are four designations in these last two verses that I'd like us to look at. And these four designations build upon each other progressively, answering why the believer has been given these designations. So our our first designation is that believers are a chosen race. Verse 9 begins, but you are a chosen race. Peter is quoting from Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 9, and Isaiah 43, 21. He identifies those who believe in Jesus as chosen, just as God has chosen Israel for a special purpose within his redemptive plan. The Legacy Standard translates race as family, which really gets to the heart of what God has chosen us to be. We're part of his family, his people. These people are not chosen based on any innate character or quality. Believers come from every race, every ethnicity, every nation, every socioeconomic level. They're not chosen chosen for some innate goodness that they possess or some character quality. No, they're chosen based upon the free decree of God. This is divine election, the opposite of divine reprobation. Peter has already spoken of this truth in verse 4 when he described the believer being drawn to the living stone. And such truth, again, devastates human pride, since your salvation is not derived from any merit you possess, but all of God. Because election is totally by divine grace, it is the most God-exalting doctrine. What an encouraging truth to realize that your inclusion in God's family does not depend upon your own innate goodness. I mean, if my own goodness was, was required to be part of just my earthly family. I'm pretty sure my two brothers would have kicked me out a long time ago. And I'm pretty sure some of you might be in the same boat as me. And that same thing is true for God's family. Being part of God's fam- family does not depend upon your innate goodness. Now, we must ask, what is the purpose for believers being designated as part of this family? It's not so that you can be saved, get your spiritual fire insurance, and sit back and relax. No, you're designated as a people so that you might serve as a royal priesthood. In 1 Peter 2.9, it again tells us the believers are a royal priesthood. And the apostle here is quoting from the Old Testament, citing uh, Isaiah 61.6 and Exodus 9.6. So as priests, you have an opportunity to serve the king by offering up spiritual sacrifices in his presence, just as we read in in verse 5. The spiritual house Peter mentions in verse 5 turns out to be a royal house, a a, a place for a royal family. Believers are a ruling priesthood, literally a royal house of priests. I mean, talk about a privilege. I mean, what a privilege that God has designated you as a royal priest. What a wonderful opportunity that we have to offer up our spiritual sacrifices of worship. And why do we have this designation as royal priests? Well, because of the third designation listed in verse 9. Believers are a holy nation. To be holy means to be set apart. You have been set apart from the world by God to serve him as royal priests. Holiness speaks to the believer's sanctification, which is the process by which the believer is conformed to the image of Christ. You are positionally sanctified upon being born again, meaning that you are designated as holy. However, the process of being conformed to Christ is a lifelong process of progressive sanctification. This is what the believer is called to do and what the believer will do if he is truly in Christ. Even though as believers were part of this holy nation, Peter can still urge us in chapter 1 verse 16 to be holy just as God is holy. If you are a Christian, you are both positionally holy before God, yet you also must pursue a life of holiness. And the question must be asked, why are believers a holy nation? And the answer is found in the next phrase of verse 9. Believers are designated as a people 
for God's own possession. God controls your life. You don't. Your life is not meant to be lived for your pleasure and your desires. Too many Christians live their life as if they are in control. When you wake up in the morning, do you determine to live your life for God or for yourself? When you came to church this morning, did you do do so as someone who is owned by God, who is possessed by God? Whose glory are you living for? And why does God possess you? Well, the end of verse 9 tells us, look at your text. It says, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God, in his goodness, called you out of darkness. Now, sinners are content in their darkness. They're hostile to the light. Unbelievers are, are in one way, like cockroaches. You turn on a light and we scatter from the light. We flee back to the darkness. Jesus is the light and we see him and we don't want anything to do with him. But God called you out, made you a people, made you a royal priesthood, a holy nation possessed by him. And why? So that you may proclaim his excellencies, so that you might glorify him. That is our purpose for existing, to glorify God. And the Lord declares in Isaiah 43, 21, the people who I form for myself will declare my praise. God formed us as a people so that we might praise and glorify God and, and, and talk about how he has brought us into this marvelous kingdom of light. So are you doing this in your life? Is your life glorifying to God? Are you fulfilling the purpose for which you've been called? God called you out of the kingdom of darkness, gave you a new heart, and has brought you into his marvelous kingdom of light. And this is only due to his great mercy, which we're going to read about now in verse 10 as as we conclude this portion of Peter's epistle. Peter says, For you are not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 10 reinforces a designation found in verse 9. The people who have been made for God's possession were not always God's people. Remember, Peter is writing to Gentile believers. The Jews, not the Gentiles, were were God's chosen people. Yet God has mercifully grafted in the Gentiles to be part of his family. Peter is quoting here from Hosea chapter 1, verses 10, uh, and then chapter 2, verse 23. And of course, we know in Hosea that the Lord uses the prophet's marital life to illustrate God's relationship with Israel. Hosea's wife, Gomer, is an adulteress. She's unfaithful to her husband. And in Hosea chapter 1, she has three children. But Hosea is only the father of the first child. And eventually, after a period of discipline, Hosea restores Gomer and shows mercy to his wife and to her children. And in a similar way, although Israel has rejected God and rejected Christ, the Lord will one day restore Israel during the coming millennial kingdom and the reign of Christ. Like Hosea, God also shows mercy to the children who were not originally his own. So if you are a believer, you were originally not part of God's people. You were a spiritual rebel at war with God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and could do nothing to earn God's favor or merit his grace. You were under the wrath of God. There may be some in this room today who do not believe in Christ. You've never submitted yourself to God. You've never submitted yourself to his lordship. If so, you are currently under the wrath of God even as we speak. And if you die under such wrath, you will receive the wrath of God as judgment for your sins for all eternity. You are outside the mercy of God. And I beg you and urge you to repent 
and trust in the Lord. Yet there are believers, if you're a believer today, you are experiencing mercy. You are not under the wrath of God. You are saved today. You're not just saved from your sins, but the consequences of those sins. You're saved from the wrath of God. And for the believer, this should be a tremendous encouragement to you as you deal with life's struggles. As our passage demonstrates, you're saved from God's judgment by God's mercy for his glory. You have spiritual distinctions that God has given you, setting you apart for a life of service. You have this assurance, assurance which should encourage and uplift you as you live your life in the pursuit of God's glory. The distinctions that Peter lists in this passage should greatly encourage you if you're a believer. You have been drawn to Christ, designed together as a spiritual household, meaning that you will not be disappointed on the day of judgment. Instead, you will be deeply honored and exalted as a child of God, despite the difficulties you experience here on earth. As a believer, you have not been doomed to reprobation, but instead have been designated by God as a people for his own possession, ones who have received his mercy. May you rejoice in these spiritual distinctions. May you have the, the confidence to face life's trials, knowing that your purpose does not depend upon your, your personal life or your personal situation. May you offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God knowing that your purpose is ultimately to glorify and praise our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Kind, precious Heavenly Father, how grateful we are that you have given us these words. Some of these words are difficult, they're hard, but at the same time, they're encouraging. And we're so thankful for the mercy that you have given us, the grace that you have showered down upon us, even though we do not deserve that. We are not worthy of your mercy. Now, Lord, I ask if there is someone in this room who has not trusted in you, has not repented of their sin and submitted to you as Lord, that you would bring them under conviction, that you would grant them repentance and faith. Lord, we, we love you. We praise you. We give you all the honor and all the glory. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus.